Good evening, everyone. Numbers. So we are now starting a new book in the Bible, the book of Numbers. And um, we will go through this one in chunks. Some good things, but also some miserable times because, well, we're in the wilderness and Israel is not... Um, you know how the Bible calls them the children of Israel? You want to know what kind of child? The toddlers of Israel. Yes, I am in numbers as a father. Right? Brittany just ever so seriously said yes. I should tell you everything. Okay. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts to come to a place where they are at your feet, recognizing the risen Lord who's ruling and reigning, and recognizing our need in our place, that you would open our ears to hear your spirit and what he is saying to the churches tonight. <clears throat> that voice that is always speaking, you would help us to be dialed in, tuned in, um, our ears opened up to hear that. And our eyes, as the psalmist prayed, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things according to your word. So, Father, we are asking for your guidance in your word. We're looking to you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the things about numbers is that it wants to tell you that you count. It not only counts individuals, but it names a lot of them. And it wants you to know that you count by name. God is not just some cosmic force trying to move, mobilize this mass of unnamed individuals. God is a relational being, a relational presence. And he is moving in our lives. And he wants us to know he's not just the man in the sky, that maybe your prayers will eventually penetrate the thick layer of cloud and atmosphere and stratosphere and cosmic distance, whatever, but that he isn't like that away and saying, yeah, yeah, I got my people. People keep liking me, get more followers, get more friends. He's not like that. He's moving in our midst, in this room, out of this room. He's moving in places we would consider sinful places like Sin City. He's moving from end to end of the globe. And he's moving around all people. Not everyone is in tune with him. Some are dead and not awake to what he's doing, but he's everywhere and he's moving and he's speaking because God loves his creation. He loves his creation. It was made from him and he made it so that we could participate in the goodness and the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
their unending mutual reciprocal love and generosity and graciousness and dance and laughter and grace together. That feast, that party, that, that joy. He wanted others to experience because it was so good. So he made us. He made a world. He made a place where he can bring people into that. And it grieves him that so many have decided to turn away. But he's been pursuing relentlessly, even not even letting a cross stop him, to continue to say, you count, you count, you count, you count. And I want you to know that I have a plan for you. Speaking of about which, <laughs> uh, I grew up hearing so many pastors say that from the pulpit. God has a wonderful plan for your life. I believe that. But I believe that we throw that out there. But it's like a promise that's like at the top of a very high ladder that few of us can feel like we can climb. Great, God's got this wonderful plan, but like I'm I'm not seeing the path in front of me. And it's easy for you to say, Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, look what you're doing. God's got a wonderful... You notice it's always the preachers who say that? <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> you're like, of course you're saying that. But, but see, you're not going through divorce. You don't have the kid who hasn't spoken to you for years. Um, you don't have... I mean, you, you apparently like your job. I don't. <laughs> or retirement is not everything they told me it would be. I get that. So God has a wonderful plan for us because we count. We're all numbered. The hairs of our head, Jesus said, are numbered. But what is this wonderful plan of God? What is his will for me? How do I find it? I see some of this addressed here in our opening chapters of Numbers. And it's a question I think all of us have asked many times. So God has a will. Sounds good. I want to walk in it. But what is it? Most of us are familiar, very much so, with Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2 is the one that gets interesting. Not that the other wasn't, but it gets more toward our question. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. (laughs) Now, it's an interesting verse. Here's why. Let me read it to you in the New King James Version. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So the New King James Version reads like there are three tiers to the will of God. You have the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. But... The ESV, which I'm reading from, made it sound like the will of God is all of those things. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Uh, the New Living. Some of you guys like to read the New Living. It's a good, easy one. 
Listen to it in this one, the New Living. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn. I like it because, look, how do we know the will of God? First, it's saying you got to change the way you think. If we're just going mindlessly to what the world's asking us to do, you're going to just never really think about the will of God. You're going to think about the will of me, myself, and I. That other trinity. So don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then, so we change the way we think, and then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So what I'm driving at is, I don't think, I'm prone to errors, and many of my opinions are probably unpopular, but I don't think that God has a will that's perfect and then just acceptable and, yeah, okay, second best. I think that God's will is perfect. It is acceptable and good. It is all of those things. And what the Bible wants us to do is not say, well, you can be a halfway decent Jesus follower or a full Jesus follower. I don't think it's saying, if you mess up on this decision, it's okay. There's the class B citizen Christian. God just has a good will. That's all the Bible wants to say is God's will against your will. God's is better, it's best, it's perfect, it's good, it's acceptable. Yours will feel good for a time, but it's not going to get to where you wanted it to go. So Romans tells you and I, as we ask the question, what is God's will? It says, look, the good, the perfect, the pleasing, the acceptable will is found when you and I are willing to submit ourselves as living sacrifices to our king and to say, change my mind. Change the way I think. Let me see the world. Let me see my life. Let me see my situations through your eyes. And then I will be able to discern, able to prove, able to see the will of God. So that's Romans 12. We're now in Numbers chapter 1. I I labor to say all that, to say that there's just one will of God, because I think you're going to see that Numbers agrees and that um, it's actually something that you can do tonight. The will of God is not waiting for that crisis where you're presented with two options. Should I stay or should I go? Should I go up or down, left or right, A or B? And those are good times to ask, what is the will of God? Do I take the promotion? Do I not? Do I uh, go with <coughs> my boss's decision or not? Do I move or not? Do I... Uh, proceed with disciplining my kid this way or not? Do I put my kid in public school or Christian school? Like, th- Yes, those are good things to ask for the will of God. But the will of God is something that can be started tonight. So Numbers chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, where we've been for some time. In the tent of meeting, which remember the tabernacle was um, recently erected, On the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Okay, don't miss that. So what you just read was in Exodus 40, from Exodus 40, the end of Exodus, to the first chapter numbers, a single month has gone by. That's it. One month. So Leviticus occurs over one month. 
What you also see here is that Numbers occurs a good year after they've left Egypt. So that's your timeline. We've been in the wilderness for a year. Most of that parked right under Mount Sinai, of which a good month of that is God giving us the Levitical law, which we looked at before Easter. So, now he says this a year later, a month after they get to Sinai, or I'm sorry, uh, a month after Exodus, after a year under Sinai, he says, take a census, verse 2, of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. So you see that there's a census that's going to happen. It's for war. They're finding people who are able to fight. So women, this is not saying you don't count. It's just saying that these are the people that God is preparing to go into Canaan. Now, in verse 5, you see this. These are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elizer, son of Shadur. From Simon, Shelemuel, the son of Zerishadai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminabad. From Issachar, Nathaniel. That was an easy one. The son of Zuar. And so forth it goes. You're realizing that there are people here. There are actual people. God didn't just say, take all the chiefs, whoever they are, of each tribe. And, you know, they're the son of some guy. I don't know. I probably would have blasted them at one time. Um, just take these people. No, no. God knows their names. God knows what tribe they're from. He's asking them to now participate in this. So God's calling us by name. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And he's working this out in Israel's midst. Now, um, it's not exciting reading. So we're not going to continue in chapter 1. But it basically goes and says, all right, this many people are available in this tribe. And then in verse 47, we learn that the Levites are exempted. They don't go to war. They stay with the tabernacle. Then chapter 2, we see the arrangement of the camp. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. So they have the flags flying that, you know, identify this clan, this family, and so forth. And verse 2 continues, They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. This is good. So in the wilderness, God is not only now numbering the people, he's now organizing the people so that they can move with ease. There's order in the camp. It's not just every man for himself. Go camp where you want. He's telling them where and how. So in the very center, you have the tabernacle. That's the place where Israel worshipped God with the Levites, the priests. And around the tabernacle, he's going to ask that each tribe sets up on a different side of the tabernacle. North, east, south, and west. So that there are three tribes in each quadrant, making the twelve And they are all surrounding the presence of God. So that he becomes the very center of the people's lives. This is like Romans 12 saying, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may know the will of God. Here's an illustration. Put God in the middle and arrange your life around him. And that's how he's asking the camp to be arranged. 
And then if you want to read it and find out which camp is where, I have it all written down. I did it. You can do it too if you want. It tells you the rest of the chapter is, hey, these three tribes are on the north and these three were on the south. And this is how many were in each camp. Then in chapter 3, we come to this very interesting passage. Chapter 3, verse 5. The duties of the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. Okay, so we've got the men listed for war. We've got the tribes all camped around the tabernacle and ordered and managed and organized. And now we're addressing the Levites, the priests. And the thing that God says here is, I want you to notice two words that pop up. Now, they may be translated differently in different translations. It doesn't matter what word it reads. You need to understand that what we're looking for is these words are connected somewhere. So I'm I'm going to tell you uh, minister and guard in the English Standard Version. Those are the words we're looking for, minister and guard. Um, So read with me and you can find what yours says. Uh, that they may minister to him. Verse 7. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and they shall and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. But you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall never forget it. Be put to death. Um, So, minister or serve, some translations would say, and guard, keep, guard, protect. Why am I making the fuss of those words? You've read them before. Very important area. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says that God put the man in the garden. And the ESV says, to work it and keep it. The Hebrew words are the exact same as the ones here, minister and guard. Work and minister is the same Hebrew word. (coughs) Keep and guard are the same Hebrew word. And many scholars have pointed out that this is not accidental. The only two places in the Bible in which these two words, work and keep, minister, guard, you know, these two Hebrew words, the only two places in the Bible where they show up together are Genesis 2.15 and this passage here. And interestingly, (laughs) they're used to refer to the priestly duties in the tabernacle. You're to serve, minister God. You're to keep and protect it from anything unclean. Adam and Eve's job in the Garden of Eden was priestly, is the point. They were in a tabernacle, a garden tabernacle, a garden temple, where the presence of God was with humans, and their job, just like the priests, keeping the lamps trimmed and on fire, and the bread burned, and the incense going, and the animals at the altar, and the wash basin filled with water and cleansed, and everything that they were doing for the people, blessing the people, and bringing the people to worship God, all of that activity is the same thing Adam and Eve were tasked to do in the Garden of Eden. 
Only they were trimming not the lampstand, but the trees that the lampstand represented. Trimming trees and keeping creation clean and beautiful and, and, and progressing it forward so that the garden continued to grow around the world. And they were keeping it and protecting it from unwanted forces from entering the garden. <clears throat> like the serpents. And you see, interestingly, that they fail before they even eat the fruit. The serpent was not to be there, and they were given commission to guard and keep the temple, the tabernacle, the garden. So why am I belaboring this connection? Because this is us too. We must see. Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. So does Revelation chapter 1. We are a royal priesthood. And Adam and Eve were the first humans whom we were all supposed to live like, but then they sin, and so now we sin like them. We were meant to be given a beautiful place where God and humans are one and together, and we were to work and serve God and bring people to God and bring God to the creation and to protect it and guard it. And so what we're seeing in Jesus, our high priest, who's called us back into the mission, the church is called the temple. We are to continue to minister or work. We're to continue to guard and to keep that which God has given us. So what is in front of you? You might be a literal priest. You probably wouldn't be here if you were. You probably would have had church this morning. But you might be a literal priest You know what you're supposed to work and what you're supposed to guard. You may be a chiropractor or have some other so-called secular job. But you need to understand that that's your garden or that's your tabernacle. And we are there called to work on behalf of God for people and to guard and keep that, what you've been given, to function the way it's supposed to function. We are living In a temple. It's everywhere. Jesus said it's not going to be that building in Jerusalem anymore. And it's sure not a tent in the wilderness anymore. It's the people of God where they go. That's the holy place where to serve and keep and guard. So where you are, it matters. It may not feel like, oh, the super calling of God. Like, oh, this is the will I've been praying for. Sometimes we just have to renew the way we think and see that what's in front of us is God's will. And it's how we walk with it and in it. Are we serving and ministering or and are we serving and ministering and are we guarding and keeping that which he's given us? Chapter three goes on to give us an account now, the numbering that the Levites count too, and their sons. And um, it's really interesting how in chapter four um, we see more numbering of them and but more to detail, we have the three sections of the Levites, and they're each tasked with a different part of the tabernacle, so that when it's time for Israel to move, one section of the priests was to roll up all the linens, the cloth coverings, and put coverings on things, and they were to do all that. Another group was to pick up all the furniture, so they were carrying the altar, they're carrying the ark, they're carrying the lampstand. Another group was to take all of the foundations, and all the fencing, and all of the framework, all the that stuff that holds the thing together. They were to carry that. So that when God says time to move, everybody had a duty and a job to carry the tabernacle with them wherever they went. Don't you see what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to carry 
the presence and the dwelling place of God with us wherever we go. So when I'm at church, that's not the only time for me to shape up and be all goody two-shoes. That, by the way, that's just a horrible hypocritical thing to do. Like, oh, I'm great here, but I'm not elsewhere. But this is not the only place to think about, oh, I'm in the house of God. Frankly, you're in a building with what people often call throw-up carpet, because it hides a lot of stains. <laughs> and chairs, which are so imperfect that we, I, I say we, it wasn't me, but people here, had to cut the backs of the legs so that they would be angled right on the sloping floor so you're not falling forward in your chair. This is a room with material and construction and things that were built with a roof that's probably a little bit too low and a stage that we had to fix and lower because it was way too high. It's just a room. It's not the house of God. i got to suddenly be on my best behavior around Everywhere you go, is the world is the house of God. And because Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit to live within us, you have become the house of God, walking in the house of God. Everywhere you tread is now therefore holy because of the Holy Spirit within you. We forget this because we want the convenience of turning holiness on and off. This is a place where God doesn't dwell. But this is Come on. We are like the Israelites, asked to camp around the presence of God, and we're tasked with carrying it when he tells us to move. So, friends, tonight as you leave, carry the presence of God with you. You always are. We need to be mindful of this. When you go to your jobs, when you go to do what you have to do tomorrow, when you're hanging out with grandkids, you're carrying the presence of God with you. And when you're in traffic... On the lovely 91 freeway, uh, you are carrying the presence of God with you. So, (laughs) chapter 6. By the way, chapter 5 tells there's certain unclean people have to go outside the camp until they're clean. We talked about in Leviticus, unclean does not mean sinful or unholy. It just means contagious, dangerous. So, here's a little place for you to kind of get healed before you get forced back into things. Uh, You can go back to Leviticus and listen to some of that. I think we call it God's anatomy when we talked about that. Uh, The rest of chapter 5 has this really interesting um, test for adultery. A guy thinks his wife has been unfaithful. And so um, they go through this test in front of the priest at the tabernacle. She eats dirt. I mean, really, they put dirt in a cup, and she drinks it. And Oh, and the priest writes curses on a scroll and scrapes them off into the water, and she drinks it. And if she's guilty, it says that her thigh swells and falls off, but most people, commentators say, whatever is actually happening to the body, the point is infertility. She becomes unable to carry babies anymore. It sounds really strange, because how in the world would this happen? And we have no record of it happening, and we don't know how to do this today. We've lost the ingredients. It sounds like a magical moment, like, drink this and find out if she's guilty or not. Um, It's almost like truth serum or something. Just drink this, and you won't help but tell the truth. So I really don't know what is there for If you have a great insight, let me know. All the commentators just told me what's happening. I'm like, thanks, I can read that. Chapter 6, the Nazarite vow. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite. Now that's not Nazareth. Okay, a Nazarite doesn't come from Nazareth. That's a Nazarene. So this is not Jesus. By the way, as we read this, Jesus did not take the Nazarite vow. It's interesting. You can read this and think, everyone needs to do this. Jesus didn't. Okay, so when either a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. This goes so extreme. You can't even touch a grape, like not even a raisin. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. I don't know who eats the skins, but that's there for you. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. (coughs) He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that separates, that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother, for his brother or sister, if they die. They shall make him unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Wow. So there's three conditions to this Nazarite vow. You know somebody has the vow. When you're at, the Super Bowl party or something, and there's a trail mix, and there's raisins in it, and he, I can't eat that. Why? There's raisins. It's not like gluten. Come on. (laughs) Then his hair starts getting longer. And then the, the clincher is when somebody he's close to dies, cannot be around the body. And that's hard. This was the Nazarite vow. It was extreme. An entire food group of this culture gone. The hair of your head. I would imagine the beard too. Just, yep, here I am before the hippies. I am peaceable. And not being able to mourn with the dead. This was the Nazarite vow. And the point it said to us several times was it was the time of his separation. So all holiness means, we think of holiness, we think of angels and cherubs with their cute little butts and their wings and their halos. That that's not holy. Holy simply means to set oneself apart. And so the Nazarite vow is this physical, tangible, people can see I'm deciding to set myself apart from everything else for the Lord. And so we don't have to take the Nazarite vow. I know somebody who literally kept the Nazarite vow for six months. It was interesting. But we don't have to do that. What, it's, what we can take from it is that there are times when you want to have a special vow of separation and to choose to cut something off or to visibly, something that just says to people, I am choosing for a period to live different. And sometimes we need these physical uh, practices, these physical, if you want to call it rituals, in order to get ourselves to change habits, sometimes that's necessary to go that extreme. You can say, I'm separated in my heart. That's fine. God never asked you to do this, but you may find it helpful for special moments. So that's the Nazarite vow. And then it goes on to say things like, in case, in case Aunt Sally didn't tell you there's a raisin in the salad and you ate it, what do you do? 
Um, if you're done with your, if the time of your dedication's over, what do you do? You, you cut off the hair and burn it and stuff like that. So, um, chapter 7, we see a bunch of offerings given to the tabernacle. The people are generous, and God notes each of them by name, their generosity. They're forever recorded. This person gave this. <coughs> Some would say, I guess, that they lost their crown in heaven and got it here on paper. That's a bad deal. I'm pretty sure they didn't ask to be written down. And then in chapter 9, we have this interesting <coughs> passage. And this gets much closer to, I think, what happens when we ask, what is the will of God? So, Numbers 9, verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. You remember that in Exodus 40, a long time ago. The, it was all built, and the cloud came down and covered it. And Moses couldn't even enter because it was so thick. So he's just reminding us, because that was a lot of words ago. And at evening, it was over, the cloud was over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Hold your place there at verse 19. So it's saying that there was a cloud hovering over the tabernacle and it looked like fire at nighttime. So this cloud, as long as it was over the tabernacle, the people stayed in their camps around the tabernacle. But when, as soon as the cloud started to drift, it was time. They would blow horns and the people say, let's go, let's go. The cloud is moving. But if the cloud didn't move, they stayed put. Really simple. 19. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. And according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. So sometimes it was just a quick hotel stay. One night, oh, cloud's moving again, let's go. It's funny because God didn't tell them, like, hey, this will be a three-day stay, so why don't you unpack? He never apparently told him. It's just like, sometimes it happened like this, sometimes it happened like that. So imagine how you got to live. Always in your backpack, I guess. Whether, verse 22, whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, a.k.a. a year at Sinai, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. So, really repetitive. We just gave you a lot of different scenarios. They followed the cloud. If it stopped moving, they didn't move. And they didn't worry about it. I don't. Joe, we've been here for three weeks. Do you think maybe we should blow it? 
Like, does it just need like a little kickstart or something? They, they didn't worry about it. They just knew, God just said, it's not time to go. So let's call the cable guy. I guess we're here for the long haul. They, they just watched the cloud. I see, I see two interesting lessons here. First being, you always had to be ready. How would you live if you always had to be ready? Oh, it's time to move. Um, of course, civilization has advanced tremendously from the Stone Ages or whenever, you know, whatever you call it, times when we didn't have everything we have, because we're able now to sit down and live in one place. There was a time when humanity had to move and move and move and move wherever the food was, right? Well, we were able to advance because we can just call a place home. Um, so there's a benefit to that. But can you imagine how you would live? How would you value possessions if you knew you had to move all the time? How would you value housing and cars? And I don't, I don't, it would just, I think it would just change the way you think about a lot of things if you knew you had to be up and at it all the time. And what you would prioritize and the things you counted as valuable would be much smaller. Second thing I see interesting is uh, that of relax. Relax. Americans are really good at accomplishing things. That's one of the things that make us unique. We believe that you can make your future, right? Anybody can rise up and become something because it's a free country. Everyone has access to things. Some more access than others, but there's, there's the availability. And um, so we have this, it's in our DNA to be like, I'm antsy. Let's get something done. Let's go finish something. Let's go conquer a mountain. Let's, I don't know. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's I don't, destroy and build and win. But, but here they're not allowed. They might be getting antsy and God's like, I didn't say move. And I think, I think we sometimes get the mentality of, well, I got to make something happen. Church attendance is going down. Let's do something. But that, that, right? That's your initial thought. Um, <coughs> God is just like, guys, I didn't move the cloud. You don't move. I didn't ask you to get a big fan and push it. Just chill. And so this causes us to live in a much more, okay, I don't have to be stressed about every little thing because God will make it clear when it's time to move. Or more or less clear. Okay, so this becomes, I think, that question when we ask, what is the will of God? Sometimes we want to know what is the will of God because we have options and decisions and choices to make. And this is like, yeah, this is hitting the point. But the first eight chapters of Numbers hit a very important point before this point. And it is that the will of God is first and foremost that you carry his presence with you in every part of your life every day. That's the will of God. Every other decision is secondary to the decision and choice to live with the presence of God in your midst every single day. That is the will of God. Don't believe me? First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading if you're turning to find it, because don't worry. It's verse 3 that we really want to see, but I'm going to start reading. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, Paul says to this church in Thessalonica, Brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So you're already pleasing God. You're already walking in his will. We've shown you how to do that. We're asking that you keep on doing it. So verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And I'm thinking, no, Paul, I don't. Good news. He tells you what those instructions are. Verse 3. 
For this is the will of God. What's the will of God for your life? This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Now, if that doesn't help because that's a big word, don't worry. He clarifies as we go. Your sanctification, meaning that you abstain from sexual immorality, (coughs) that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, and gives who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the will of God, all of that, your sanctification. In other words, your holiness, your walking with the presence of God in your life every day. Carrying the presence of God with you wherever you go, whatever you do, where, whomever you're with, whatever you say, every day. Or put another way yet, the will of God is the lessons we learn from Numbers chapter 1 through 8. That we camp with him in the center of our lives. We sometimes make vows if necessary to separate ourselves unto God. We carry his presence wherever we go. And we rest right underneath his cloud, that visible symbol of his presence among his people. That is the will of God. So keep going, as Paul would say. As you're doing, keep going. So sometimes we're waiting for God to come and call us off of a seashore like Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Hey, follow me. Yes! Sometimes we just kind of feel like, I've been waiting for years for that. It hasn't happened. Dear brother and sister, not all of us get that kind of a calling. Sometimes, no, all the time, for all of us, the first calling is your holiness. You're walking and carrying the presence of God everywhere you go. That is his will. And if we are not walking in that, you have no business wondering what the will of God is because you haven't mastered the first step. Now, there will be times when a question will arise as we're walking day by day carrying the presence of God, and there are options, and we say, I don't know what to do. Yes, these are good times to now ask that other question about the will of God. What is the will of God? So, if we're doing step one, walking in his presence day by day, our minds will be renewed, and we will be more easily able to discern his will in those decisions. So you see, we can't jump straight to the big questions because you're not ready for the big question if we're not willing to take the little steps first. So here are three kinds of decisions that we tend, (coughs) that you will tend to have to make. All of your little, like, what's the will of God in this instance? They're going to fall under one of these three types of decisions we have to make. The first one is very obvious. I'm just going to call it the obvious decision. There are times when you're praying for something to happen. You're praying for a door to open. It opens. Come on, people. Walk through it. God, are you sure? I only asked this for like two years. And he's like, come on. What are you waiting two more years to decide if you should walk through it now that it's open? 
that's the obvious decision. Sometimes it's laid out before you. And we don't always think about that one because we are usually, it didn't seem like a choice. Like, I had no, like, just do it. It was a a (coughs) no-brainer. But what you need to know is that just because it's an obvious decision in God's will and that you should walk through it does not mean that it will be perfect and that it will be without obstacles. You need to understand that. That God will open a door, but it doesn't mean that it's paved with gold forever. I'm not even sure why gold's heaven, I guess. It's hard. It's not paved with rose petals and pillows. <laughs> Bowling lane bumper pads. Like, that's, it's not that. Sometimes it'll be a crevice. Sometimes there are potholes. It's, it's like roads maintained by our wonderful state. <laughs> Sometimes that's what it's like. So we need to understand that just because you face resistance and adversity, that doesn't mean that it wasn't the right choice. So sometimes there's an open door you've been praying for, and it's like, just do it, even if it's going to be hard. Yeah, it probably might be harder, but you got to do it. So if that door opens that you've been asking for, stop making excuses. But what if this, and what if that? Just, just don't be iffy. Just be certain. The second kind of decision is the one we're more familiar with, is the maybe... So the first one is obvious, exclamation point. This one is maybe, question mark. So you've got choices, and you're like, they're all kind of good. I can see pros and cons to both. What do I do? Um, This is where you want to employ the cloud principle. If the cloud hasn't moved, you don't need to make a decision. Stay with where you're at. Whatever that, that might mean geographically or it might mean in some sort of life choice. Just stay where you're at. And the cloud represents, I mean, it could be so many things, but it's just the presence of God. It's the sense of where is God. And one of the ways you need to find out is, (coughs) am I under the cloud or not? Is one, is there peace? Where is the peace in life? Peace will lead you because God leads us with his peace. If we don't feel peace in something, God's cloud probably isn't there. You're exposed under the torturous, withering sun. Under the cloud, there's peace. Now, that's not the same thing as comfort, but it's the sense of I'm where God is, and that's enough. As Paul said, you know, not everything was great, but I've learned to be content. So, uh, is there peace? Well, another thing to do is um, think about, well, if I do this, am I sensing that I'm becoming more alive or am I getting more irritated? If I do this, I do kind of feel like I'm going to have a closer sense of God's presence. I'm going to be more loving to people. Sometimes it's just good to look at what kind of person will these choices make me. That's really easy to see which one is where the cloud is and which one is not. You guys know what it's like to be hot and hungry. Yeah. That's not where the cloud is. The third, so there's the obvious one, the maybe one, and then the third decision is the genuine IDK, the I don't know, dot, dot, dot. Like, I literally have no clue. And I, I, I think that we often... This is the times when we really start pleading with God, what is your will? Because I don't know what to do. And so we really want an arbitrator to step in and say, just do this. Like, yes, sir, thank you for making a decision. Uh, these are hard moments. What do I do? I don't 
know what I'm supposed to do. So I want to give you guys um, a couple helpful suggestions uh, that may help us in these moments. How to follow the cloud of God. Um, the first, there's, there's two methods. The first is kind of like a logical one. The second is an imaginative one. So let's go with the first one. Um, I, I want to call this one prinking. Prinking. It, I, I borrow that from Francis Chan. It's, it's thinking and praying together. <laughs> Prayerful thinking, prinking. So there's four steps to this. First, you pray. God, move my heart somewhere. God, I want your will. You pray. You prioritize, second. What is most important in my life? Sometimes it's just really good to name that. Because then you can see, oh, this option doesn't help my priorities, but this option does. We pray, we prioritize. Second, we make a list of pros and cons of each choice. If I do this, here are the benefits. Here are the not-so-good things. If I do this, here are the benefits. Here are the not-so-good things. Sometimes looking at that, and that's where I say it's kind of logical, you just like, oh, I didn't like see it all amount to that. So you pray, you prioritize, you make a list of pros and cons, and then fourth, you ask for confirmation. So you're looking at it, you're like, it seems like this option D is sticking out more than the rest. God, make it certain for me. Show me a sign, confirmation that this is the right decision. And sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. But when you ask for one, you might be surprised at the different forms they come in. It's not always going to be the airplane doing skywriting. <laughs> I knew it was yes. Okay. Then the other method, the more imaginative one. This is where you ask yourself a series of four questions. Question one. What advice would I give myself if I was a person I did not know going through the exact same situation I'm going through? So if I saw that person with my same dilemma, what would I say to that person? The benefit here is that you're able to step out of it emotionally and just kind of look at it objectively and in a little bit of indifference. Just kind of like, yeah, my decision isn't already made. What would I say to this person in this context? Sometimes it's a lot easier to imagine that than to say, what would I say to myself? This is my life we're talking about. Nah, it's just, I don't even know this guy. Is it Joe or Joseph? I don't know. But this is what I would do if I was you. And then apply that to yourself. How would that look? Uh, question number two. Imagine yourself on your deathbed and ask, what should I have done? <laughs> Something about death puts things in perspective. Uh, the old adage is that no one on their deathbed wish that they put more hours in at work. And that puts into perspective sometimes, oh, well, if I'm on my deathbed, this looks like a better decision. Number three, in light of eternity, which decision makes more sense? Or if I'm to stand before God right now and answer for my decision, which one would I want to answer for? That, again, just puts in a slightly different perspective. Um, should I rent or should I buy a house? Well, let's be honest. In the aspect of eternity, this doesn't matter. 
But you make your list and you see, oh, well, I could use my money like that, or I'm going to have these aches and pains, or my time will go towards maintenance, but oh, I won't have anything left for my kids. Or like you're going through this list of things, and sometimes you're like, you know what? I'm stressing out about which is the will of God, and God's saying to me right now, it really doesn't matter. Just make a choice. Sometimes, sometimes it might. Sometimes there's a neighbor you're meant to live next door to. But anyways, I'm getting off the whole point of the question. Imagine yourself in eternity, and what would you, if, it, how would you explain your decision before God? And then fourth, uh, ask yourself, what would my best self do? It's a good question, because sometimes we live in our lesser selves, and we're afraid of what our best self looks like. And we all sometimes fear that, well, my best self, which is not fearful and is courageous and wants to work hard, like that best self, uh, he would totally do this. And the only reason you don't want to do that is because you're afraid of having to grow into your best self. Um, sometimes this is really cool because when in the process of asking the question through decisions and asking for the will of God, by asking what would my best self do, we sometimes learn how to become our best selves. And is that not the will of God to lead us onward to continue to grow in him? So those are some of the questions that you can ask. What advice would I give someone on my death, what I wished I'd done? What would I say in light of eternity before God? And what would my best self do? And in all of this, I want to, I in closing, loop us back to Romans 12. And I want us to just remember the primary will of God for your life is to walk with him. Sometimes we can overly stress about which of these is the will of God. I don't want to settle for the second best will. I personally think that Romans did not mean to split God's will into three avenues for you. I think he was just saying, camp around the presence of God, carry his presence wherever you go, follow the cloud, and then prayerfully think about the options in your life and you can't go wrong. Do you really think that you who wholeheartedly want to walk with God and make the wrong decision will be forever cursed for it? How dare you? You failed the one test. I gave you one question. God isn't like that. Sometimes we stress so much. Yeah, there are important decisions to make. But sometimes we kind of like make everything make a break moment. And, you know, maybe you know God called you to work as a doctor. Just an example. But did he tell you that you had to go to this college and become that specific practitioner and work for this hospital or that office in this city? That's stressful if you think that that is the whittled down, like what I have to discern the will of God over. God gave it to you. There it is. He's called me to be a doctor. Now within this calling, there are infinite options And I think God is pretty good at making you, as long as we're not resisting him, become the the doctor you're meant to be, regardless of which college you went to and so forth. 